What happens when we understand Jesus's crucifixion not as an isolated event, but as the climax of an entire week? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Show. I'm Alex Goodwin, joined by Paul Caminiti and Glenn Powell. Holy Week is right around the corner, so today we wanted to talk about how we can understand Good Friday more as the top of a crescendo rather than something that we just examine in isolation. I mean, personally for me, before I started going to a more liturgical church, I didn't even really know that Holy Week was a thing. Um, you know, growing up, my church recognized Palm Sunday, of course, where Jesus rode into Jerusalem, but then we just sort of fast forwarded across the week to to Good Friday and, and to Easter. So so once I started to understand the the events of the week and digging in and just finding out more about the symbols and the theology and all that sort of stuff behind Jesus's actions, I, I feel like the cross and the resurrection just took on so much more meaning than I even expected them to have. I think that's right, Alex. Uh, many Christians, probably us included have a habit of reducing Good Friday to kind of a single phrase, you know, Jesus died for my sins so that I can go to heaven and enjoy eternity, you know, with my family. And Glenn, you know, early on when we started talking about this, you introduced a phrase that I really love. And you said, while the cross is certainly not less than that, it's also so much more. And uh, these five days, that lead up to Good Friday are really freighted with gospel lessons that are too often ignored when we just skip to the weekend. And I think we're going to see you know, in this podcast, this truly is a cosmic event. It reverber reverberates across time. It changes uh, the trajectory of people and planet alike. And, you know, we need to see it in all of its fullness. Yeah, I think it's the case so often with the Bible that the small meanings that we've kind of learned to attach to events, they're not really taken away. What they, what they are given back to us with bigger, richer, deeper meaning. When you read big and read in context, it's not that you lose things, it's that you get them back better, I think is the way to think about it when you read the Bible in the way that we try to advocate here. Yeah. So yeah, this phrase, uh, Jesus died for my sins right? As a personal kind of substitutionary atonement. Um, the language, of course, comes from Paul more than the Gospels. And so we read that back into the Gospels. And it's not that it's wrong. It's that the Gospels kind of have their own agenda. And we need to pay attention to Jesus, his actions, and the way the Gospel writers talk about that. So what we, what we don't want to do is miss what the Gospels themselves are saying about the events of Holy Week, right? That's, that's the big idea. So what, one way to do that is to take a single Gospel, which each of the four Gospels has their own take on things, their own angle on the, the mission and the, the ministry of, of Jesus. What we want to do is take one Gospel and kind of follow Jesus through Holy Week so that we can get the ideas that that Gospel writer is saying this is what Jesus is thinking and doing as he heads toward his crucifixion on Good Friday. Yeah. Yeah, so today that's that's what we're going to do with Mark's gospel. 
Um, out of the four Gospels in particular, Mark is the best at kind of clearly differentiating between each of the days mm. uh, with a uh, with a phrase like, you know, the next morning and that sort of thing. Um, and then he packs all this, all the events and the meaning of the day, obviously, into that day. So um, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to go through each day, kind of say the the phrase that he introduces it with if, if readers or listeners want to follow along and uh, and just kind of unpack the the crescendo until uh, until good friday so obviously holy week begins on palm sunday um and it starts out with this phrase as they as they approach as jesus and his disciples approach jerusalem so mark's kind of setting the stage uh this is this is the setting of the week where where a lot of the events are going to go down and uh and there's this event that most of us are familiar with that's that's known as the triumphal entry Jesus enters Jerusalem to a whole bunch of fanfare, riding on the back of a donkey. Uh, you know, the, the streets are crowded with people praising him, uh, you know, saying things like, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Then there's also this phrase that I kind of often overlook, blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor, David. I'm like, okay, mm. uh, you know, what, what, what all is going on there, Glenn? Yeah, that's so interesting. I think, first of all, we have to remember what gospel we're in. In the Gospel of Mark, this thing called the Messianic secret has been a big deal. So all throughout the Gospel leading up to this moment, Jesus is always, you know, performing these amazing actions, healing people, forgiving sins, right, casting out demons. And the demons um, are saying, I know who you are. You're the Son of God. It was a Messianic title. And Jesus is telling them to be quiet. Or Jesus hmm. heals somebody. And they want to go tell everybody. And he's like, no, don't, don't tell anybody. Right. Mm. He's like all hush, hush. And so the idea that Jesus doesn't want his messianic status revealed too early is the background. But now he comes into Jerusalem as king. And it's like the moment has finally arrived. And Jesus is doing, pulling out all the stops to say, okay, now let's, let's have it out. The religious leaders and myself have a different vision for Israel. Now I'm openly claiming to be Israel's king, the Messiah. So this is something that he's tried to hush-hush throughout the gospel, and now it's all out there. And so for a Jewish person in the first century, the background would have been Saul rode a donkey. Solomon came into Jerusalem on a donkey. Judas Maccabeus in the book of Maccabees comes into waving palm branches after winning a victory over Israel's enemies. So mm. there's all this kingly background already that Jewish people have in mind. So when they see Jesus willingly and openly entering Jerusalem as king, they're like, okay, this is his moment. We've heard about this wonder worker walking around doing these amazing things, telling us these amazing stories. Now he is finally openly declaring himself to be king. And I think just one more piece of background, it's really important, I think, for the Jewish expectation of their real authentic king, which Herod was not viewed as an authentic king. They thought the real king will rebuild or cleanse the temple, which is why Herod had a temple project going, because he was trying to validate his own status as a legitimate king. And the other thing was the real king of Israel We'll fight our enemies and defeat them. So those are the kind of two guiding ideas. As Jesus comes in now declaring himself king, 
Those are the expectations people are going to have. What are you going to do with the temple? And what are you going to do about our enemies? Hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, just as a little bit of foreshadowing, I think it's really interesting that that day ends. You know, he comes into Jerusalem and then it says, Jesus came into the, in, sorry, Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple and then looked around mm. and then left, you know? Yeah. So it's kind of yeah. this foreshadowing for stuff that's going to be coming later in the week. Right. He doesn't do anything yet, but he's looking around, yeah. like scoping out the scene. And this is where the action will take place. Yeah. You wonder what the, uh, the mindset of the crowd was during the triumphal entry. And, you know, these were people that knew their scriptures pretty well. And you wonder if there were, you know, playing in their minds, the echoes from Zechariah, you know, see your king comes to you, mm. righteous and victorious lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey so to your point glenn mm -hmm. they they had you know their imagination was rekindled from others who had rode in and probably each time wondering maybe this is the the one this is the one that's going to get the job done mm -hmm. and probably missed altogether zachariah's statement about him being lowly and gentle mm -hmm. yes this right. was a yeah. military enterprise <laughs> right 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 so uh, day two uh, is, is Monday, and it starts with the phrase that the next morning as they were leaving Bethany. And I think we have to remember for each one of these days that they all have a pedagogical side. Something is going on mm. oftentimes beneath the surface, and uh, we, should, we should be looking for that. And so we have, you know, in this day, there's this kind of famous but strange story of uh, Jesus you know, walking past a fig tree. He's hungry. The tree is in full bloom, but there's no figs. And so he curses the tree. And then he goes on into the temple that he scoped out the day before. And, you know, we have the story of the, the famous story of the cleansing of the temple. And then, you know, the next morning uh, when he walks by this fig tree, it says that it had shriveled and died. And so there's a number of things that are going going on here, you know, uh, that are disconcerting, that are upsetting the normal flow of things. The temple is a well-oiled machine, uh, and Jesus has flipped it on its ear, and then he's cursed this fig tree. And, you know, it says there uh, the next day that it was withered from the roots up. Mm. This is not just a throwaway phrase. So you know, kind of what's going on here, the temple being upset, the fig tree being cursed. Uh, there's some some gospel messaging going on here. Yeah, I think it it's worth, that's why it's so important, I think, reading the Bible big, like reading this whole week at once, you're getting the frame set right so that you understand the events later because of the framing that takes place earlier. And even in this individual story, right, when Mark decides to frame the story of the temple cleansing with this story of the fig tree. The first part happens before it. The second part happens right after it. So it's definitely like bookends. So it, mm -hmm. he's intending for us to interpret the middle event by the event that's before it and after it. So that's what's happening in terms of the structure of the story. And cursing a fig tree. Why? Because it's not fruitful. Anybody in Israel would have said, okay, this is a prophetic action. This is the kind of thing Isaiah talked about, uh, Israel being a vineyard, not producing the fruit that God is looking for. 
that's regular language in the prophets. So Jesus is saying the fig tree, it's not just about a fig tree. It's about Israel. It's about the temple. The temple is not producing the fruit that God was looking for when the temple was built. Israel is not producing the fruit that God was looking for when he called Israel. And so therefore he goes into the temple and it's it's not just this cleansing of the outer court, which was, by the way, the court of the Gentiles, where Gentiles were supposed to be welcome to pray. And so the vendors are setting up their stalls and selling and buying out there in the court that was supposed to be a place of prayer for the, the nations. That's where it happens. But I think it's probably more than that, just cleansing that area. I think it's kind of an enacted parable of the temple's coming destruction. And Jesus mm. will talk about this more explicitly later in the week. But he begins by a prophetic action that says, I'm intending to disrupt the function of this entire complex of the temple. He's saying it's not going to keep running the way it's been running. So this is his, his action. One of the things expected of the Messiah or Israel's true king is to cleanse and or rebuild the temple. So he's just announced by his action that the temple has to be destroyed. So the question is, will he rebuild it? And how will he rebuild this temple? And the cursing of the fig tree says, I'm not going to put up with an institution or a nation that isn't producing fruit in keeping with the righteousness of God, a nation that won't repent. And so he's starting out the week announcing his intention as king, but what he's going to do. All right. So we move on to Tuesday, which Mark introduces with the phrase the, the next morning. So clear enough. <laughs> um, and, and Mark actually spends more time, I think, describing the events of Tuesday than, than on any other day. You know, there's these extended kind of teachings and parables and uh, confrontations with uh, Jewish religious leaders at the temple, uh, failed predictions of the temple's destruction, or maybe explicit predictions of the temple's destruction. Um, so, so what's Jesus trying to do here with his interactions at the temple? Yeah, this is really the biggest day of the week, right? Jesus has extended confrontations with Israel's religious leaders. So this has been brewing a long time. I mean, way back at the beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus is acting, and, it, and there's this amazing statement where the Herodians and the Pharisees got together because they wanted to kill Jesus. And that happened early. Well, number one, Herodians and Pharisees don't usually work together. They're not on the same page. Followers of King Herod and Pharisees were on completely different pages in terms of a vision for Israel. But they're united in their opposition to Jesus. So here, this conflict that's been brewing throughout the entire gospel comes to a head. And Jesus takes on Sadducees, the official kind of guardians and keepers of the temple, the ones who were Israel's representatives with Rome, the unofficial leaders called Pharisees, who were kind of self-appointed guardians of Torah keeping in Israel, scribes, right? All these different leadership groups that kind of everybody knows they're running the show in Israel. Jesus confronts them one by one and says, you have not been producing the fruit that God's looking for. So just like he cursed a fig tree, there's this parable of the vineyard where servants are sent, right? Then the son is sent, the son is killed, and it says the owner of the vineyard is going to take it away 
and give it to people who will produce fruit. And and that's been God's vision for Israel all along, is he's, he chose them to call them to a mission, be a light and life for the world. And that's what, what God has not seen, the owner of the vineyard. So Jesus is following up day by day and reinforcing the same message. The temple is not doing its job. Israel is not doing its job. The leaders in particular are not bringing Israel into the place where God wants them to be. So Jesus, as the self-announced Messiah now, is saying, I'm challenging your leadership, and I am proposing a new direction and new leadership for Israel. So the whole thing, there's a lot of stories of confrontation. But, and, and I think oftentimes people will read those as kind of standalone teachings of Jesus. But if you put them in the context of this week and the announcement of Jesus as king, you get a much clearer picture of what Jesus is actually trying to do on a big scale. There's an amazing amount of confrontation going on here. And, you know, Jesus' statement, too, that he makes, uh, you know, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Mm, yes. Just very unnerving in the Jewish mindset. The nations needed to be destroyed. The Gentiles needed mm-hmm. to be destroyed so that righteousness uh, should come in. So we come to Wednesday, and uh, it begins with this phrase, it was now two days before Passover. And of course, I think all along we've been saying that it's no, uh, it's not inconsequential that Jesus plans all of this around the Passover the Passover festival. But I, I think, you know, just looking at the human side of this, guys, Jesus mm. must have been, you know, truly exhausted at this, this mm. stage of the game. He's carrying the weight of the world uh, on his shoulders. Uh, he is utterly alone in his awareness of the impending crucifixion. Amazingly, the disciples are, are clueless about what's going on. They're still arguing about who's going to occupy the positions of power in the the new monarchy. And so uh, it's kind of a, I I think, a merciful thing. There's kind of a a short reprieve Mm. in the story there that Jesus Mm. gets invited that evening to the house of Simon, a leper that apparently Jesus had cleansed. So he's he's on friendly ground. And then there's this lovely story of a woman who comes uh, with uh, an expensive a jar of nard. She doesn't uh, anoint Jesus's feet like an earlier uh, woman who had done, but she anoints his head. And um, and then, you know, Jesus says about this woman after, you know, a great deal of debate about whether or not the money should have been spent for the poor. He says that from now on, whenever the gospel is taught, this woman's story will be told. And uh, I love that. The gospel, this is what we're saying in this podcast. The gospel is a bigger story than just these singular events. It's a richer, a richer story. Hmm. And, you know, there's, there's actually intimations here, too, that as Jesus is introducing his new kingdom and, and this coronation, everything is going to broaden. The Gentiles are going to be included and women are going to be included. Their stories were mm-hmm. never told, you know, in mm-hmm. ancient in ancient history. So what Paul, you know, says later more didactically, you know, you know, in God's new community, there's neither male nor female, you know, rich or poor, et cetera, et cetera. Jesus says the same thing, but, you know, in the context of a story. So 
anyhow, it's a climactic day, but there's some reprieve for Jesus at the end. And then this is the moment, too, in the story where there's the hinge. Judas walks out with the intention of betraying Jesus. And so we have these two characters, uh, one who has adored Jesus and poured oil on his head, and the other who's been with him for all these years is now going to turn against him. And this is really kind of the world's <laughs> um, choice, isn't it? It's one or the other, either adoration mm-hmm. or, or betrayal. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. And I think there's a couple of things going on there. One is, clearly, this day shows us that the events of the week are centered on Jesus himself and what will happen to him. You know, he's either anointed in adoration or he's betrayed. And, and Jesus is the center of this story. So this, this story that Jesus starts with is, this is about Israel and Israel reaching the fulfillment and the calling that God has for Israel. But it comes down to Jesus. And it's apparently the story of Israel hinges on the story of Jesus. What happens to Jesus is what will happen to Israel. It's really interesting how that story of the anointing, again, is bookended. So right at the beginning of that day, it says, because of the confrontations of the previous day on Tuesday, the religious leaders get together and say, this is enough. We have to kill this guy. While he's here this week, we have to secretly get him and get him off the stage. We're done with him. Then you get the story of the woman anointing Jesus. And then at the end of that, you understand how it's going to happen. Judas goes out with the intention of betraying Jesus. So the stage is being um, set for the events of the end of the week. And now we're getting a bigger picture of how Jesus himself is at the center. And we see where it's going. Okay, so Mark introduces the next day, which during Holy Week we typically call Maundy Thursday, as the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. So this is the day uh, of the Last Supper when Jesus gives his final instructions to his disciples. Um, Obviously, you know, this this practice, this uh, establishment of the Last Supper is carried over into church practices today in in communion or or the Eucharist. Um, So do you think that Glenn, it's a coincidence that all of this takes place during Passover, or is this kind of an an intentional move on Jesus' part to kind of set the backdrop of what he's doing? Yeah, it's it's so intentional, right? I mean, Jesus had his whole life and career. He could have done this anytime he wanted to. He chose Passover week, right? And we have to realize, okay, there's a connection with Jesus as a Passover lamb, as a sacrifice. Okay, that makes that makes sense on its own right. But in the bigger context of Passover, Jesus is saying, this is how I want you to interpret my death. So my death is approaching. He talks at the meal about being betrayed and that someone right there who's with them is going to betray him. He's been anointed for death the day before. He's had conflict with the leaders. So what Jesus has done in both his actions and now in his words, by choosing Passover itself, as the way to interpret his death, is saying, my death is the great liberation event. It is a freedom event. And yes, atonement is a part. Come back to our opening question, Jesus died for my sins. Atonement was always a part of the Passover event. 
right? In the, in the first Exodus, there was a sacrificial system revealed to Israel that would allow them to be in the proximity of God in the tabernacle who had come down to live with them. So there was forgiveness of sins and there was atonement. So that's, that's right near the heart of it. But the overall event is a liberation event. It's a freedom event taking you from bondage into freedom and hmm. into a new promised land. So there's a, there's a new Exodus thing happening here. And by Jesus picking Passover as the way to interpret what he's about to do is a way of saying, this is a battle. This is a battle against the powers that are holding my people captive. It's not Pharaoh this time. That is to say, it's not Rome. I'm not here to fight Rome. I'm here to fight the deeper enemies that are holding people captive. Sin, death. And so this new exodus is bigger, greater, deeper than the first exodus. And that's the way we have to think about Good Friday then when it comes, is that Thursday, Monday, Thursday, the Last Supper gives us the tools for rightly interpreting in all its its splendor and multifaceted glory what happened when Jesus went on the cross. Thursday is crucial, and we can't separate these things, but we have to see Friday in the light of a Passover event and everything that that means. We're familiar with uh, the Good Friday story. It's where we most often take up. Uh, Jesus obviously is dragged out of the Garden of Gethsemane to uh, a mock trial, an immoral trial done privately. It's a sham. And eventually, you know, they convict Jesus. He's taken to Pilate. um, And then he's crucified mockingly as the the king of the Jews. That's the sign that Pilate has Mm. hung up over his head, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, King of the Jews. You know, little I think does Pilate know that he's contributing to the prophetic and the gospel message. So, mm-hmm. just right. as Jesus yeah. said earlier, you know, if the people don't praise me, the stones are going to cry out. And even Pilate, Pilate's going to—he ha- doesn't know it, but unwittingly, he's yeah. saying, "Yes, this is the one. This is the lo- the world's long-awaited king." Yeah, and it's interesting the two different trials. I think it's important to keep those clear as separate things that are happening. Jews had a trial, and because in Torah it talks about the the people that they can put to death are false prophets. So that's in the Torah. That's in Deuteronomy. Hmm. So they convict Jesus not so much of being a false king, but of being a false prophet, so that they can bring Torah in to say, the only thing that's appropriate to do with a false prophet is to put them to death. And then, of course, they don't have the ability, the legal authority to put someone to death without Rome's approval. So they have to go to Pilate for another trial, but there the charge changes. Pilate couldn't care less about false prophets and Torah. So here they have to switch it to, he claims to be a king. So it's the messianic title that comes into play in the Roman trial. Okay. So, so the next day is Saturday, uh, the, the seventh and last day of the week. Uh, also known as the Sabbath day. And you have all these, you know, it, it doesn't spend a, long, a lot of time talking about that, of course, because Jesus is uh, lying in the tomb. But there's all these echoes of the creation story, right? Where, mm-hmm. where on the seventh day, uh, God rests. Um, and and on the seventh day of this holy week, that's that's when Jesus rests. So it's this 
crazy just symbolism overlap between kind of the founding of the world and as we'll see on on the eighth day on the first day of the new week um kind of some some new new world <laughs> no not new world but uh you know what i mean new new creation kind of implications there yeah exactly and so the story just keeps getting bigger right yeah it's it's jesus right but this jesus story is really an israel story but israel's story has to do with the whole world the whole yeah. the whole choice of abraham's family was about god bringing blessing back to his entire creation to to all peoples it says in the call of abraham and so now at the death of jesus we're seeing that a new Israel story, a new Exodus is taking place. And all of that is in service to a new creation story for everybody. The court of the Gentiles has been cleared. Women have been honored. And so the circles are expanding. And Jesus dies on the day in the first creation week when humans were created, the sixth day. He rests in death on the seventh day. And then that sets the stage for the new day and the new creation. So seeing these bigger echoes and themes is a way to give, you know, the crucifixion of Jesus and then the resurrection, their full meaning in, in, in kind of in light of the entire biblical narrative. And it just makes the whole thing, I think, mean more when we get our personal redemption and atonement and forgiveness in setting a story that is so much bigger. So Glenn, I think you've covered covered a lot of this, but anything else that you want to say about the fact that as Alex just reminded us that Sunday very early on the first day it says mm. this isn't simply the first day of the week, it is really the first day of an entire new creation. Yeah, exactly. I think it would be helpful to visit the questions we started with. What are the two things that Israel was expecting from a Messiah. So cleanse and rebuild the temple. So Jesus enacted a parable about the destruction of the temple, but what, what's going to replace it? And I think what happens is we see that Jesus himself is the replacement of the temple. What did you go to the temple for? To get forgiveness of sins? To worship God? And now Jesus himself is the source of the forgiveness of sins. He's a walking temple, if you will. and he is the way to the worship of God. So we see Jesus being worshiped after his resurrection. And so Jesus is the new temple where you go to worship God. So he's dealt with the temple issue by saying the old temple was not producing fruit. So therefore, through me, the new temple, new fruit is going to be produced that God wanted all along. And then this thing about fighting Israel's enemies. I think that also comes up to play. It's like Jesus has refused to make Rome the enemy. So when he hmm. dies on the cross, he's actually fighting his battle as Israel's king. He's mockingly dressed in a robe and a crown right before his crucifixion by Roman soldiers. Well, that was actually his inauguration as king. That's actually when Jesus did become king. They took it as mocking, but it was real because he immediately went out and fought Israel's battle on the cross. I think N.T. Wright has this phrase, Jesus went out alone and lost the battle for Israel, right? It looks like he's losing, but it was actually a victory. That's where we learn right later in the New Testament. That's where the powers and principalities 
that hold God's people captive, that's where they were defeated. So the cross is an atonement, yes, but it's an atonement that is also a battle victory. And it looks like losing. That's why Jesus has all these sayings about losing your life to gain it, dying to sin and death in order to live. All these paradoxes kind of come into their own when Jesus takes up his battle on the cross. And then the question is, okay, he's died. He's died in battle. So what's going to happen? And so the first day of the new creation is God's vindication of the path of Jesus to fight a different kind of battle. No longer does God fight people in physical battles. No longer are God's people to engage in violence, to defeat enemies. Now we have a deeper spiritual battle that is the real source of evil in the world. And that's precisely what Jesus has taken on on the cross. Yeah. All right. Well, we've covered quite a bit of theology in this episode. Uh, you know, symbolism, all that sort of stuff in, in a pretty short amount of time. And at one level, we we simply wanted our listeners to kind of get a big picture understanding of Good Friday and the resurrection, how they tie into the rest of the week, themes like Passover, that sort of stuff, and how personal atonement fits into this bigger uh, picture. But uh, but this isn't the Theology Reset podcast. So, uh, <laughs> nice. you know, we, we'd like to bring it back to to Bible reading and, and how this illustration helps us read the Bible well. And so I think we wanted to show a method of Bible reading as it pertains to Holy Week that represents reading big, understanding symbols, understanding context, connecting the dots between Israel's history, um, Israel's story, and the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. Glenn and Paul, can you, can you bring us home in that regard? Yeah, I'll just quickly say the way that this stuff gets revealed is when you read whole books. So if you read the entire Gospel of Mark, that's when you'll start seeing these connections. And if you read the whole week of Jesus from his triumphal entry all the way through to his resurrection the following Sunday, if you actually read daily, kind of keeping up with the story as it goes in one of the Gospels, then you will get that Gospel's portrayal of what the cross means. And so I think Holy Week, right, Good Friday, Easter, The more we read big and read in context, things that we advocate for all the time on this podcast, that's when the payoff will be big versus reading small pieces in isolation. Read whole books, read in context, and make connections with other parts of the Bible. That's when I think it all comes alive. Yeah, I've been uh, thinking throughout this this podcast um, of the title of N.T. Wright's book, The Day the Revolution Began. Mm-hmm. This is the way he describes what happens during this entire week. Jesus, you know, who up to that point in history had been completely hidden. There's no references to Jesus in the Hebrew Bible. He now takes his rightful place as the world's true king, a place that he occupies today. The world's power structure tilts on its axis. Glenn, you mentioned it, this, the principalities and powers are placed under Jesus' feet. He launches a new community. The spirit is released. We go on and on. There's a true uh, revolution that's yeah. going on. But but to our point, and you now we wrap this up, that we only see this. We see the revolution as we kind of reset the way we read the Bible. So even the section that we read in Mark today, the, the final week, it's 10 pages. 
and you're immersed right. Bible, it could be probably read in 15 minutes or so. And so mm. anyhow, we're encouraging people to take in the big story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we hope that, you know, as, you, as everybody heads into Holy Week this year, that this episode has given you some extra stuff to reflect on. Um, and of course, you know, if you want some homework, we'd encourage you to spend time in the Holy Week story in Mark's gospel, perhaps, you know, going day by day, just read that day's events on, on the day of Holy Week and just kind of sit in them, marinate in mm. them. And then by the time we get to Good Friday, you're kind of where Mark wants you to be in the story as, and, and as he's brought you along. So that's going to do it for this episode. If you'd like to support our work at the Institute for Bible Reading, you can join Changemakers, which is the community of donors who have pledged $20 a month or more uh, to help us change the way the world reads the Bible. You can find out more about that at instituteforbiblereading.org slash changemakers. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you on the next one.